welcome to episode 53 of History Does You and our part five and our final part of our multi-part series on the U.S.-China relationship. Today we'll be examining Chinese grand strategy as well as some of the fault lines in U.S.-China relationships that we should be looking out for over the next couple of decades. To kind of put things in the perspective with this interview with Dr. Blumenthal, I would definitely recommend getting his most recent book, The China Nightmare, which kind of evaluates kind of U.S.-China relations, really starting with the Korean War going up until now and some of the biggest challenges that China faces and how policymakers should focus. It's again, it's a good book that gives kind of a broad overview of U.S.-China relations, as well as kind of, again, some of the biggest challenges China is facing and how policymakers should approach it. And again, it's only, I think, 250 pages. It's an interesting read, so I definitely recommend getting it. And I have left a link in the to Amazon to the book below. So again, I would definitely recommend it. Again, we've spent numerous episodes examining the U.S. perspective on what are the goals of U.S. interests in sort of the Indo-Pacific region, but really valuing what does China want. And it's challenging because I think the autocratic and secret approach that China takes makes it difficult to always read. Again, China, during their summits for the Chinese Communist Party, will again lay out five-year plans, 10-year plans, 15-year plans. But there isn't always a huge amount about military or defense policy. It's always super broad, usually airs out like grievances about different things. It's not sort of about strategy or specific strategy or what kind of the end game is. But again, most analysts deduce that that China seeks in the Indo-Pacific specifically to become the sort of hegemonic power in the region, but also sort of create a system that favors China across the globe. Again, whether that's through the Belt and Road Initiative, which we discussed last week, whether it's through uh, vaccine diplomacy that's currently going on, all those sorts of things. So this interview kind of gives a little bit more kind of perspective on someone who's worked on U.S.-China issues for a few decades, both in the government and in the think tank sector. So it's a good interview. It's short. He gives very synced answers. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Dr. Blumenthal. On today's episode, we are very lucky to welcome on Dr. Dan Blumenthal. He is a resident fellow and director of Asian studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on East Asian security issues and Sino-American relations. He has served in and advised the U.S. government on China issues for more than a decade. Before joining AEI, he served as senior director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia at the U.S. Department of Defense. He served as commissioner on the congressionally mandated U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission from 2006 to 2012, and he was vice chairman of the commission 2007. He has also served on the Academic Advisory Board of the Congressional U.S.-China Working Group. He's the author of numerous books, including The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State, and co-author of An Awkward Embrace, The United States and China in the 21st Century. So welcome on. Thank you very much for having me. And just to start, what is your favorite subject of foreign policy to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how do you become interested in China and the Asia Pacific region? Well, thank you. As you could probably tell, China is my favorite topic to talk about. And Asia is, stands as, as a second, Asia policy. And I became interested in the 1990s for a variety of different reasons. I had a family that had lived in Southeast Asia for a number of years, and I spent time in Southeast Asia as a student. And then I came back to study for my master's in law degree and started taking Chinese and thought that China would be a very important country for the United States in the future. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in your field? The biggest challenges? Well, at first, I would say that until very recently, 
many people in my field did not agree that China would pose problems for the United States. And there's nothing wrong with disagreement and intellectual argument and policy debate. But I was concerned that the U.S. government wasn't going to do much, if anything, about what I saw as a looming problem. But that's obviously turning around in the last few years. We're starting to take the China issue more seriously. Mm -hmm. And just to get into kind of specific issues that are going on, one thing that you kind of mentioned in your recent book, The China Nightmare, there was always this kind of belief that as China opened up its economy to the world, the country would become more democratic. Where did that kind of go wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I encourage everyone to go out and buy my new book, The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. I think the idea was incorrect. The concept was incorrect. I think that it came from the successes with other Asian countries, South Korea, Taiwan, for example. But the difference between South Korea, Taiwan, and China is the scale is much smaller, and the U.S. had a lot more leverage to pressure those countries to become democratic because they relied upon us for security. So I think that's where the idea came from. But the U.S. never had, and the West never had leverage over the Chinese Communist Party to become more democratic. So it never was going to be right. They wanted to hold on to power. Mm -hmm. And just out of curiosity, does Chinese history play a big role in how the, the Chinese Communist Party thinks about foreign policy and its standing in the world? It very much does. And I get into that a bit in my book. So there's a long legacy and history, some of it very concrete in terms of the past conquests of Chinese dynasties that now make up the People's Republic of China of today. And that obviously shapes how China views the world and interacts with the rest of the world. But part of it are just uh, strategic traditions handed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And are China's goals, just to kind of talk about really current issues, are they limited to kind of just the Asia Pacific or has their ambitions become global? Their ambitions are global. The prize is the Asia Pacific region is becoming the dominant power in the Asia Pacific region. But the horizons have certainly been set higher to control international institutions of global governance and to be a power in many different critical regions. So the main goal is the Asia Pacific. Taking a position at the center of international politics is very important to Chinese leaders. Mm -hmm. And does the underlying clash between kind of democracy and autocracy play a big role in the kind of ongoing competition between the U.S. and China in this region? Well, it certainly does because it makes the stakes higher. So if the U.S. were to lose its uh, place of world leadership, of global leadership, of preeminence, then a world led by China, so to speak, that would be far more authoritarian and closed and mercantilist. So it makes the stakes of this strategic competition a lot higher. Mm -hmm. And do you think China seeks to develop kind of a network of alliances that the U.S. has kind of pursued for the last few decades, or is it comfortable kind of operating on its own? Well, so as I say in the book, it, it wants to substitute the U.S. alliance system, which is threatening with a series of global partnerships, it calls it strategic partnerships, which are less binding bit more economic and commercial in nature and transactional. So it views the alliance system as a relic of the past and something that is meant to keep China down and contained, and it wants to get rid of that. And lately, China has been spending massive amounts of money on its military. Why is China doing this? Is their goal to retake lost territory or project military power across the globe, similar to what the United States currently does? 
Well, definitely not similar to what the United States currently does, because the United States is invited into many countries to provide security and to keep some semblance of global order. China doesn't have any interest in that, in keeping the world safe. It is developing military power for a number of reasons. One is to retake what it claims to be lost territory, say, in Taiwan. The second is to expand its own territorial goals in places like the South China Sea and elsewhere. And then, of course, now to protect its growing overseas interests further afield in the Indian Ocean and out to the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. And what do you think an international system with China being the leader look like? Or would look like? Would Western democracies become authoritarian or would they simply just lose their influence in the system as it is now? Well, every country where China is playing a leading role has become more corrupt and more authoritarian, to be candid with you. So if you look at Cambodia, if you look at some of the machinations of China inside Africa, if you look at other Southeast Asian nations where China is heavily invested commercially, it creates more corruption, less transparency. And I think that's what you would see worldwide. And you get into some of the issues that China currently faces. What do you think are the biggest problems, both internally and externally? Mm -hmm. Well, by far the biggest and maybe insurmountable problem was China all of a sudden changed its culture is demographics. So it's getting old very, very quickly. And I write in the book that the only growing age cohort in China is the over 65 cohort. And they're going to be hundreds of millions of people 65 and older in, in the next 10 years or so. And there's nothing the Chinese can do to reverse that without enough workers and children to take care of or to fund this massive old age tsunami. The second problem is the demographic problem is twofold. And the second part of the demographic problem has been the selection, sex selective abortions. And so there are many more males than females in China that are either of marriage age or going to become of marriage age. So that'll create a lot of social problems. Those are almost insurmountable. And China had an immigration problem. It's slowing the economy. It's going to create social problems. It's going to create fiscal problems. But there are other problems as well. Mm -hmm. And do you think those problems that you mentioned make China more dangerous because it wants to sort of shield those problems from the rest of the world? The main point of the book, The China Nightmare, is indeed that it's making China more dangerous because if it sees that it's not going to overtake the United States, that it, the time is not necessarily on China's side when it comes to economic growth and so on, it starts to act more aggressively to lock in gains now. And I think that's played out over the last year in 2020, 2021. And just to kind of follow up over kind of the last year, particularly with COVID and the pandemic, how do you think that's impacted China's standing in the world? Do you think vaccine diplomacy is going to be kind of the next stage of China's global ambitions? Well, I think it's impacting China very negatively and will be even more negative over time because, first of all, the virus originated in Wuhan. And as we know, and as I have in, in my book, there were cover-ups and so on that made the virus much worse and made the epidemic turn into a global pandemic. And we don't know the, the full origin story of that yet as we sit here today. So that's one reason I think China took a hit. And then its behavior in terms of nationalization of key medical equipment uh, for Chinese uses rather than world uses, and then information and misinformation campaigns, which it's still conducting today about the virus and about vaccines. Finally, the United States, 
actually won the vaccine race by a large margin. Its vaccines are much more efficacious than China's vaccine. On China's vaccines, it's important for everyone to know they didn't even release any data on, on clinical testing. And there's corruption in the pharmaceutical industry. So China's giving out a vaccine. It probably works to a certain extent. It's giving out a vaccine globally, but not to the extent that the U.S. or the U.K., vaccines work. And I think over time, those who get the U.S.-made or U.K.-made vaccines will benefit economically as well as from a health perspective. And outside of COVID, what do you think are some of the main fault lines where there's going to be the most tension or competition between the U.S. and China? Well, the military geopolitical competition, particularly in the Taiwan Strait and throughout the Southeast Asia and Japan, is the most intense, including in the Indian Ocean, because for the United States and for China, the countries of that region or subregion are very economically viable and growing and geographically is a very important area. So I think the intensity of the competition is for some of the big Southeast Asian nations and whether they lean towards China or lean towards the United States. But there'll be other areas of competition. I mean, there's an economic competition. There's issues with respect to theft of intellectual property and forced technology transfer. So, But the most intense is the geopolitical military competition in that particular region. Mm-hmm. And do you think there is an opportunity for peaceful coexistence or a stable regional order? Or do you think that there is inevitably going to be a conflict between the U.S. and China? Well, nothing's inevitable. And the U.S. can certainly head off a, a conflict. First of all, it has to improve its deterrent posture in the Taiwan Strait and do so quite immediately because China is really gaining an advantage in its ability to attack Taiwan should it choose to do so. But the two sides also should keep talking. I mean, diplomacy of the highest level is needed to keep us out of conflict. And part of that diplomacy is persuasion and advocacy by the United States for what its interests are and a clear explication of what it'll defend. And China, I'm sure, will do the same. Mm -hmm. And do you think we need sort of a long-term strategy to deal with China like the U.S. did with containment during the Cold War? Or do you think short-term strategy to deal with China is viable given some of the issues you mentioned? Uh, No, we should plan for the long term because some of the issues I mentioned don't necessarily take away a China threat. So I think, and the scale of China is so big, it's important to understand that even with all the economic and demographic problems I point to, China will be a major international player, even if it doesn't grow at the same pace it's been growing. So we need a long-term strategy. I think we have components of it in place. Part of it is difficult to do, easy to say, which is maintaining a balance of power that's favorable to us and our allies. And that's probably the most important component of that. We also need to get the balance of how exactly we want to interact with China commercially right. And we haven't quite done that yet. And just as a final question, how do you think a Biden administration should approach China? Do you think it should continue some of the policies started under the Trump administration or take it in a different direction? Well, the Biden administration is already following a lot of what the Trump administration did and they are intent to do so with respect to the so-called Indo-Pacific free and open order strategy of regional balancing and creating an open order in the Indo-Pacific with respect to some of the technology restrictions, some of the technology competition, and hopefully also in terms of bolstering the defense posture in in the Asia-Pacific. 
So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Blumenthal. He is one of the most foremost experts on China. He has been working on U.S.-China issues since the 90s up until now. So he has a ton of experience and offers a lot of insight. And although it's short, I think it does give a lot of insight into kind of the that China is facing a lot of challenges and that authoritarian regimes tend to project power and present themselves as stronger than they necessarily are. I mean, the Soviet Union is a good example of that. I mean, throughout the Cold War, because of the closed-binded way of the society and the just broader reality was that even as Soviet economy was stagnating in the 70s and 80s, they still more or less projected power across the globe and presented itself as the superpower when obviously in hindsight, a lot of historians have now pretty much concluded that in a lot of ways, the US was a lot more powerful than the Soviet Union, both in terms of economically, militarily, politically, and that offers a lot of unique insights. And just to kind of wrap up this series, which we've done almost over a month and a half, I hope it's been useful. I mean, I think the only real conclusion I personally have is that I think U.S.-China relations are going to be really rocky, at least for the next decade. We're recording this on March 18th, and um, today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with Chinese representatives in Alaska and Anchorage, and it didn't really go anywhere. And again, I wasn't expecting the Biden team to come out and try to do a reset of any type, but the rhetoric was pretty intense. And I don't think that's great. It makes me wary, I think, especially when the head of Indo-Pacific Command of Admiral Philip Davidson is testifying earlier in the week to the Senate Armed Service Committee and is saying that in the next six to 10 years, China would try and take Taiwan by force. And It was just bizarre seeing a lot of these senators sort of shrug their shoulders, almost like, well, that's a few election cycles down the road. I don't really have to worry about that. And it's kind of weird just because to see a lot of these hearings where the military, the senators are really saying our goal, our strategy is a free and open Pacific. It's maintaining sort of the status quo. It's maintaining what we've done for the last few decades. But if your top military commander is saying that that is in danger. And it's really centered around deterrence. So the strategy really is, or the goal is a free and open Pacific and the strategy is deterrence. That means making the cost of trying to take Taiwan by force too costly for China to actually do it. But at the same time, again, your top military commander saying this event that you're trying to prevent is likely to happen next six to 10 years. Doesn't that require some sort of course correction or strategic shift to meet that, whether it's integrating more allies, whether it's making more allies um, pledge to defend Taiwan? Again, I think that's a huge problem. It seems like there's a lot of discourse about how to approach it, but not a lot of action. And again, it's only a few months into the Biden administration. I'm sure they're going to come out with more comprehensive studies and papers about how they want to approach it. But again, I just think until events shape themselves, I mean, there's a lot of questions and I don't personally see any road where things seem to cool down. I mean, again, I think there'll be a little bit more rational long-term approach, but I don't see in the broad scheme of things a lot of change between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And I also think in the rhetoric side, it seems like there's a race, particularly among Republicans, about who can be tougher on China, whether it's Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, these guys who 
tweet constantly about we need to be tough on China on this, we need to be tough on China on that. And that makes me wary. And I think the prime example of that is the Vietnam War. In the lead up to the intervention in Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson was scared that the Republicans would use any issues in Vietnam as a political tool and saying Vietnam fell to communism, there would be this new who lost Vietnam, just as it was who lost China. And that led to a lot of, I think, irrational foreign policy decisions and I think allowed us to sort of sleepwalk into Vietnam because politicians were more scared of being attacked politically than about making sound foreign policy decisions that had American lives in in the hands. And that's, again, something that I think some people don't keep in mind when they're putting this rhetoric out because China's listening to that. They have representatives on Twitter. They're seeing that type of rhetoric. And it's like, what if Josh Hawley becomes president? How do you think they're going to approach that? And all of this is to say that, again, it's going to be really rocky. There's a lot of issues to examine, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's climate change, whether it's human rights, whether it's about geopolitical implications in the Indo-Pacific. There's a lot to digest and a lot to examine. But hopefully this five-part series helped kind of lay the groundwork or at least gave you a lot more understanding of the history, um, the current challenges, both from the U.S. and the Chinese perspective um, and all of that. Again, I think it's good that at least people are in a room and talking. And like I said, this was obviously in front of the cameras, so I'm sure there's going to be a different approach behind the scenes to how they want to approach it. So we shall see. I mean, again, I think it's probably the biggest geo strategic economic challenge the United States has faced in our history in terms of the Chinese power, um, certainly bigger than I think the Soviet Union in a lot of ways. And all of this is to say that it's going to be super important, not just for like the Indo-Pacific region, but also for the world. Again, there's a lot of consequences for, you know, like, for example, in the Cold War that touched every part of the globe in some way. And I'm sure this competition will touch every part of the globe in some way. Again, starting out with COVID, with the vaccines, like who will be able to distribute vaccines to different parts of the country or to different countries. The U.S. today pledged to give lots of vaccines to Mexico and Canada, which I think is a good start. I think it's, again, an opportunity to build some of that credibility back that President Biden has pledged to rebuild. As well, uh, Secretary of State Lloyd Austin was out in Japan and Korea doing some visits. And again, it was good to see, I think, South Korea be pledged interest in sort of joining the Quad, which again comprises India, Australia, the United States, and Japan. Again, I think that is one avenue that should be explored more in depth is how to integrate like-minded states such as South Korea and Taiwan and New Zealand and Canada into a permanent security institution that not necessarily contain, but at least coordinate strategy in the Indo-Pacific. So again, a little bit more of a shorter episode, kind of wrapping up some of the biggest, I think, immediate challenges. I encourage you to Again, read foreign affairs, read foreign policy. They're always having great commentary. Again, I think it's important to be informed about these issues because these are going to have consequences. And I think, again, I find it a little bit disturbing that one of the top U.S. military commanders is projecting a potential conflict with another nation state that is of similar military capabilities. And that didn't seem to be even like make it to the top of most news organizations. That just seemed to fly under the radar. And that's a little disconcerting because that could affect a huge swath of the United States. 
So again, I would encourage you to do that. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you enjoyed our US-China series and learned a lot. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.